What's up, everybody? And welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. My name is Rich Kleiman. Today, we have a truly special guest, somebody I have known since I was in elementary school, the father of my closest friend, and somebody who I've looked up to, admired for as long as I could remember. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Alan Patrickoff. Alan, how are you this morning? Great, Richard. We've traded places. I'm in Los Angeles now, and you're in New York. I am in New York. Hence why the good morning, because for me, we're in the afternoon now, but you are in sunny California with your son, Jamie, my close, close friend, and someone who has also been on our podcast in season one. We are here today to talk about many things. Obviously, um, I know so much about you, but uh, so much I want to learn and understand and, and fill in the fill in the blanks where I've always thought throughout the years, I would have loved to ask Mr. Patrickoff, as I referred to you growing up. Can I call you Alan for the show? Yes, definitely, right. Richard. Thank you. I, Richard still likes to call me Mr. Patrickoff, as do, as do many people from that period of Jamie's growing up. I'm very conditioned, very, very, very conditioned. But we are here today to talk about your new book, No Red Lights, 50 Years in VC and Never Driving Alone, as well to learn about your career and to inspire so many listeners as you have me. So I want to ask you first um, about the book, because I actually didn't know much about this till I heard it directly from your office. And then I asked John and Jamie, and I'm really excited to dive into it. I've glanced over it. But what was the genesis behind writing this at this point in your life? Well, it, it's a good question, Richard. I, I have thought about this for uh, probably 20 years. I was originally approached by the editor of Viking Books, a guy named Tom Ginsberg, 20 years ago, and I kept saying no. He's now passed away, so I got rid of him in terms of pressuring me to write the book. <laughs> and I kind of dropped the idea until uh, about two years ago, uh, before the pandemic, actually, uh, when a friend of mine who's uh, a leading uh, literary agent, Mort Janklow, who's a very close friend of mine, like you and Jamie, Mort and I are very close. And he said, I ought to write a book. Uh, and uh, I know Mort that he's really, uh, he's not kind to people. He, I know of several of our friends that he's told them when they had ideas about a book, he said, just why don't you just calm down, forget <laughs> about it and write a letter to your children. But he really <laughs> encouraged me. And I, uh, uh, so I was the summertime. So I sat down and wrote longhand what turned out to be about 80,000 words after it was transcribed into a, a readable print form. And I took it back to him and he said, uh, I really think we can sell this book. And I said, Mort, we're so close. I don't trust your judgment. Uh, introduce me to your, uh, I'm not necessarily your youngest, but one of your younger agents uh, and who I don't know. And I'd like to get their independent opinion. And so I he introduced me to Richard Morris uh, and Richard read it, what I had. And he said, I think this, this is a book that we could sell. And so I then decided it wasn't in a form that could be printed. Uh, it really needed to be uh, professionalized and, and, you know, edited and, and, you know, made a more uh, interesting readable version. So I uh, went, got together with a, after interviewing several people with a, uh, uh, a woman named Laura, Laura Starita, who I met over Zoom before we had COVID. And we started a process uh, uh, which lasted almost two years of uh, going through various versions of the manuscript and uh, meeting together once every month and speaking every couple of weeks. And uh, it finally got done. And then, so I was in the beginning, when you write a book, people I learned the first thing they say is who you're writing the book for. You know, you're writing it for your children, then you could do a vanity press and just do it yourself. Uh, and I said, I wasn't going to do it for my children. That wasn't the objective. I really, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it where I can help various uh, or, or provide some background to various constituencies of people who are in the venture capital business, people who are entrepreneurs. Uh, people who are just curious and uh, who want to know about it, a life 
that is uh, not a, a, a unidimensional life. Uh, and that is probably the key thing about, about my life in this book is that I've, as you know, Richard, have had a multifaceted life, but much of which a lot of people don't even know about. But I have not, you know, been a venture capitalist who just, you know, studied financial statements and and uh, went to technology conferences. But I have a much more, uh, much broader, broader background. But even beyond that, what I really, really, really wanted to do was to try to be a poster child or inspiration since uh, it's no secret i started this book at age 85 i'm now 87 i wanted to encourage as many people as i could who would read the book or hear about it to say look this is my i've just started in the last year and a half my third business i uh i'm in great physical shape uh, I have a trainer. I've had the same trainer for 25 years, uh, twice a week. And uh, Richard, you don't know this, but uh, in the last uh, couple of months, uh, after watching the New York Marathon, which I did five times many years ago, I watched this year's one and I said, I'm going to try to do it next year. So wow. I hired a, a, a running coach and three days a week, I'm now practicing Hopefully, if I, you know, I expect to not run it, but I expect to walk, jog the marathon. And uh, I just sent my check-in last week for Burning Man, which I had signed up for uh, two years ago and it got canceled. So my point is not to show off about these things, but I live a very active life. I'll be 88 when I run the marathon, if I, if I get to do it. I may not make it, who knows. Uh, that I think people should, uh, my my age, or let's say over 60, should live their life like there's uh, no tomorrow and they just uh, live it to the fullest and take advantage of everything. And I, I want to be a poster child to say, uh, you know, if you retired from your business or you are thinking about it, don't go to Florida and play golf and don't uh, sit on the beach. But, you know, Perhaps go back into your same business, attract some of your old employees. You got the biggest <laughs> Rolodex in town and uh, do it again. Do it again. And uh, as I say, I started my second business at 71. Uh, it's hard to believe it was 16, 17 years ago. And now my third business, and I have a partner in it. And uh, we started with two of us, we're on, and now we're up to four. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it's called Primetime Partners. We didn't put a one on it, but I guess, you know, sometime maybe later this year or next year, there'll be primetime partners too. Yep. Uh, I haven't stopped. So uh, the answer, it's a long, long answer, but it's, I want to be an inspiration to particularly older people, but anyone who, uh, to say, live a multifaceted life and never give up. Yep. And that's why the title is No Red Lights. Well, it's amazing, and I and I appreciate the answer because I think um, for a lot of young people, and I'm sure the climate is so much different now than it was when you were growing up. Clearly, but everybody you meet has these entrepreneurial aspirations of some way, shape, or form, and I think business is obviously so much different. But purpose and the reason to do things, I think, is challenging for a lot of young people today. And the pandemic obviously like shed so much light on that, but. You live with such purpose at 87 years old that, you know, you mentioned wanting to inspire people 60 and up, but this is inspiring, you know, for everybody. It's inspiring for me because when you have a day where you start to think about what anything means, why am I doing this? Why is this stressing me out the way it is? To understand the purpose behind all of it and to understand what it's like to love something and to do it for so long and continue to recreate yourself and then find your zest for life in that is inspiring for everybody. But let me start. You grew up on the Upper West Side, which you know is my uh, that's my stomping grounds as well. And I'm very loyal to the Upper West Side. I remember as a kid meeting your father in his apartment on the Upper West Side as well. Growing up, what was a typical entrepreneurial dream or was that word not even in the language in the English dictionary in on the 30s like that it, it definitely was not in the, not in the dictionary and uh, I I didn't know what I was doing but uh, you know when I now reflect on it as I write a book uh, you know during the war 
that was the world world war ii by the way <laughs> the korean war or the vietnam war and world war ii i i collected newspapers for the war effort i collected tin cans for the war effort i i, I sold war bonds i mean those are kind of entrepreneurial efforts as opposed to just hiding under your desk uh, i did my first real entrepreneurial job which even i'm shocked at and the only reason i know that i'm telling the truth is by the fact that I moved from one apartment building to another apartment to the third building, which you were in, where I lived most of my life from 1941 on. But uh, I knew it at 41, I was seven. So uh, the, the building I had lived in previously was 104th Street in Central Park West, and the subway was 103rd Street. And I absolutely remember uh, selling the Saturday Evening Post uh, with a bag around my uh, shoulder uh, uh, standing in front of the 103rd Street subway stop. And since the subway stop is still there, since I know I lived on 104th, since I know I moved at, at 7 to, uh, to, to uh, 92nd in Central Park, I know that I had to be someplace around six years old uh, selling those magazines. I don't know what my father did to get me to do it, but uh, I do remember <laughs> selling magazines. So those those were my early entrepreneurial activities. And uh, I guess they, you know, they formed the basis of, uh, you know, who I am today. I mean, I worked while I was in high school. I, I didn't work while I was going to high school, but I, in the summers I worked. And uh, uh, when I went to college, I obviously worked my way through college primarily uh and uh did all kinds of odd things why, why why ohio state it's funny when i was reading up on you i never even knew that you went to ohio state obviously it didn't stick with you because i don't see you raving about your buckeyes ever i never remember watching ohio state sports in the house but how does uh somebody from the upper west side of new york city in 1940s early 50s i guess how do you end up at um, Ohio State? And what were you going there to do outside of just graduate college? Was there a dream in mind at that point? No, Richard, you're, you're asking a question. I, I made this kind of an interesting story in general. If you're sitting in a group of people and you and they are sitting around the table and they ask, where'd you go to school? And one person says, I went to Emory. Another one says, I went to Michigan. Another one says, I went to Harvard. Another one says, I went to Yale. When it comes to me and I say Ohio State, the exact question that you just asked always, always 100% comes up. They'll always go through everybody. And when it comes to me and I say Ohio State, they say, how come you went to Ohio State? Uh, they won't say about a Wisconsin, Northwestern, Michigan, Harvard, certainly not. It's logical. But Ohio State, the reason I went to Ohio State was I didn't intend to go to Ohio State. I really had my dreams set higher. I went to Horace Mann uh, prep school, and uh, I assumed I was going to go to one of the Ivy League schools. It didn't work out. I graduated from college. I graduated from high school with no college because I got turned down from my waiting list, uh, and I was pretty depressed. So I started reapplying in June, and I applied to four schools uh, and got accepted from all those four. They weren't as top but they were good schools. Uh, and I uh, decided actually to go to Brandeis. And Brandeis was in its second or third year. And I didn't have the greatest advice from my parents. They were not into it. They had both been born in Europe and not that they were, they were certainly Americanized. They spoke English very well, uh, but they just weren't the kind of pairs that gave you, you know, serious in-depth advice. And so the two or three days before I was going to Brandeis, I went down to the Sherry Netherlands Hotel for a uh, orientation or, you know, how you have these pre-college meetings with the parents and the kids. And my parents didn't even go with me. So I went myself and I walked in and everybody was wearing black hats and long black robes and a lot of beards around. And I panicked and I came home and, uh, I literally, because in those days you had a trunk, uh, American Express, believe it or not, before it was a credit card, was a was a, a way of you ship, you ship your 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 bags, your clothes in a trunk, 
through American Express. Yeah, I just uh, learned. I just learned that that American Express started as a courier business in like the late eighteen yeah. hundreds. But all yeah. right, go on. It was, you use that synonymous with refrigerator. I'll, I'll send American Express. And uh, uh, my father had come had when he came from Russia in nineteen oh seven. He had moved him as an orphan with his relatives in Middletown, Ohio. I had never been to Ohio, but I knew I had relatives there. And uh, I, I just put it down as, you know, a throwaway school. And uh, I came home and pasted over the label of Brandeis. I pasted Ohio State and day, the next day left for Ohio State. Uh, and uh, that, that's how I got to Ohio State. I, I did only spend three years because I had enough credits that I didn't have to spend the fourth year. And, you know, I made the most of it. I, and, you know, a middle, uh, Midwest experience, Midwest college is a very exciting in some respects with fraternities and girls and, and, uh, girls and fraternities <laughs> and football, football yeah, and, uh, Friday night bonfires. Uh, and I did pretty well there and, uh, but I was anxious to get back. Yeah. And what, what did people, what were your peers wanting to do and be like, you know, you, there's always this kind of um, this idea that like everybody now wants to be, like I said, an entrepreneur or a CEO of their own business or start their own business. Um, and then everyone says there's no more doctors and lawyers. And I always felt like that was probably a bit more of a stereotype of an era, but what was everybody wanting to do and aspire to be when you were in college? Like, what did you think about doing after you left school at that time in your life? You know, Richard, you're asking a question I've never really thought about, but in making me, you know, it be introspective. I don't remember us talking about anything except the McCarthy hearings and, <laughs> and, uh, uh, fraternity parties. There wasn't a lot of intellectual thought or, I think most people in Ohio State were thinking about going back to their hometown of Toledo or Cleveland or Middletown or, or staying in Columbus. Uh, Les Wexner was not in my class, but was, I think, a year, year or two behind me. Uh, he stayed in Columbus. Uh, I think most people went to Ohio State, stayed around Columbus. Yeah. Uh, uh, there weren't, you know, it wasn't like going to an East Coast Ivy League school where there were recruiters. I don't know if there were recruiters even then at those schools, but there were no no real recruiters. The only interviews I got were the national, well, that I accepted, went to the National Bank of Detroit and Caterpillar Tractor. Uh, those were my three, <laughs> two job offers that I got coming out of uh, Ohio State. And, and I applied myself to the Agency for International Development because I had this dream of going to Brazil for the government. Uh, and I finally decided that I really, you know, I'm a, was a New Yorker at heart and I wasn't going to live in, in, uh, in Moline, Illinois, or <laughs> wherever one of these places were local or Detroit. Uh, and so I came back to New York and, and, uh, and the friends I had in New York, uh, you know, one became an eye doctor. Another one became a, manufacturing we didn't really have this sitting down and thinking about what yeah. we want to do but i my father was a stockbroker at that time uh after his earlier career in the in the remnants business he had, at an elderly age he became a stockbroker and uh and i always was fascinated with stocks i always from early on loved the idea uh, of uh, the stock market and reading the stock page. And uh, so I just naturally gravitated to Wall Street. What was Wall Street like then? You know, I, uh, the way I got my job, uh, which is documented in my book, uh, is uh, very truthful. I, there were no headhunters. You know, there was no way of, you know, I, you didn't know no Craigslist. Uh, I started at 120, I think 120 Wall Street, uh, maybe it was 130 Wall Street down at the foot of the river and went up to the top floor of the building through in the elevator and uh, went to the first door, whatever doors on the floor, knocked on the door and asked the secretary if there were any jobs open and walked down the stairway to the down to the first floor and then went to the next building 
and uh, it took me about three or four months. Uh, and I ended up getting a job at 63 Wall Street, actually from a, in that particular building, it was on the top floor, the 35th floor. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, yeah. I, I happened by luck, really luck, luck, luck. I ended up in a very, very, very high quality investment counseling firm. Uh, and I was a very unlikely candidate that was run by three people. One had been a, the economic partner at Goldman Sachs. The other one, I can't remember what he had done. Uh, and the third one was a Yelly. They were all very high quality people and they could have easily hired someone out of Yale, Harvard, Princeton. And, uh, I knocked on the door and just what I just said, are there any job openings? And they secretary said, let me check. And out came this Yaley with uh, a mustache. He's about six, two with a blue shirt suspenders, uh, as elegant as he could possibly be. And, uh, lo and behold, he ended up hiring me to be a security analyst. And that's how I started my career. Underrated skill when uh, the CEO of a company makes an unusual hire or out of the box hire, it's not luck, right? He obviously, for whatever reason, identified that this young Ohio State Buckeye, <laughs> I'm gonna keep using that now, was knocking on every door and that's what he wanted at his company, not another graduate from Yale. What was venture capital and private equity at that time? Um, so you're working. But there was no private. There was no venture capital or private. This was 1955. It didn't even exist. I didn't even know the the word itself. I don't think came about until 19 the late 60s or early 70s. But I I started out, you know, analyzing public stocks, your companies. Yeah. Uh, and it just happened to be that during that early period by accident, again, an accident, I got intrigued as part of my looking at public stocks, you know, like General Motors and IBM, et cetera. Uh, I looked at a little company up in Rochester called the Haloid Corporation, which was a young startup and got intrigued with that. And of course, as you know, uh, Haloid Company Corporation became uh, Haloid Xerox and then Xerox. So uh, that was my first taste of a small little company that was, you know, a startup virtually, uh, although it did have a, a market on the pink sheets. Yep. And the pink sheets is where you found small, interesting companies. And uh, I got intrigued with this and I went from that job to the army. I got, I was in the army twice. I went in once and then I got, uh, uh, called back. So I know what it's like to get called back in the reserves. I, I thought I was going into a program for six months and that would take care of my, my, my uh, army career and just spend it in the reserves. But I didn't anticipate the reserves would get called back, uh, in 1961. So I served twice in the, in the military, but I, you know, went from that firm, which was called Ness and Thomas to another firm called Lambert and company, which was run by a really unique individual from Paris. And I, I was a whole other exposure to a very high level, uh, very interesting company, which was called development capital. It was a, it was a development capital firm. The first firm was an investment counseling. The second firm was development capital. And from there I went, uh, ultimately to, uh, a firm where I spent seven years or eight years of uh, called central national corporation, which managed the family, of a family called Gottesman. And uh, we had a uh, primarily focused on the paper, paper industry, but we had a very diversified portfolio. And in that, during that time, which was from 61 to 68, uh, I, as part of running the portfolio, we also were in a position where we would be shown private deals all, very often. And nobody in the firm was interested in it but me. And so I 
got to see a lot of companies. And as you know, Richard, I became chair, chairman of the board of New York Magazine uh, in 1967. So I was, what, three, 33 years old uh, uh, because we had made an investment. And because we made an investment and it was a startup, somebody was a president and I was the chairman. Uh, and uh, I also started a medical electronics company from a friend of mine just like you and Jamie are friends, you know, you might have gone in the medical electronics company and Jamie could have backed your company. I backed uh, this company called Datascope, which was that created a cardiac monitoring device. And I just loved, just loved, loved being involved with the startup of these companies and uh, being really intimately involved as opposed to buying and selling stocks which would go up and down and many times, many days, I had no idea why it went up or down. It was just a psychological whim of whatever was happening in some exogenous factor in the, in the stock market. I also uh, invested in a small mice breeding company. Uh, I, thought, I thought I had made a great idea because you use millions of mice in uh, laboratory testing, but I didn't realize that I had invested in a clean mice company, but that they used for, for really serious research, the ones, the mice that were really valuable were what they call pathogenically pure, but we only had clean mice. We didn't have pathogenically pure mice. So that I didn't work. I invested in a light lamp company called the Entwhistle Lamp. And it was a fabulous lamp, except if you touched it, you'd burn your, get third degree burns. <laughs> Uh, uh, and, uh, but you know, all of these things gave me a taste between New York magazine and Datascope and all the others. I really got involved with lots of young companies. And, uh, so it was not that surprising in 19 late, late 69, early 70, right. Actually December 69, I decided I'm going to go and go into the business of investing in small private companies because I knew there were lots of firms around like Central National, which was the firm that I was in that was running the Gottesman family that were primarily family groups, but didn't have any skills or interest in the private market. And there was a real opportunity. So I formed a firm to uh, attract family offices and said, I, you know, you run your own public companies. I'll give you advice for uh, private companies, now, Richard, not unlike what Mark is doing right now for athletes. Yep. It was, it's the exact almost, and I have to tell you, Mark still won't believe it, but he did not copy me in the slightest, but it ends up 50 years later, his concept of Patrick Co is really doing exactly what I did, which was to go to in my case, family offices. In his case, it's athletic stars and say, you, you do your, sponsorships, you do your uh, investing, your traditional investment, but I'll, I'll take care of your, or give you advice and help you in the private, in the private markets where there's really a real opportunities. And that was the basis of which I started the firm uh, in 1970, which was called Alan Patrickoff Associates at that time. That's insane to hear the beginning of something that is such a big part of the entire business social landscape. And you were there in the beginning. And I, I guess that kind of uh, reward and that ROI on investing in startups and young companies and companies that were still building that needed your help um, was something you obviously just gravitated towards. And you know now is very common for all big successful family offices and venture capital firms. But when you kind of looked out there what was starting to happen and what were you seeing because the world you know every decade every generation is changing so much but at the time in the early 70s when you were starting to see these companies because you're synonymous with seeing some of these companies at such an early stage some of the companies that we all know that everybody knows aol apple New York Magazine, you mentioned earlier, what was your deal flow like that you started to see and how did one go out and build deal flow outside of the city you were in? It, it, Richard, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, uh, uh, when we started in New York, uh, there was no venture capital industry. 
<laughs> it was a private deal market. Most of the investors in private companies were family offices uh, here and there, and it wasn't very sophisticated, but at a, at a few firms like Lehman Brothers and Wertheim and Lowbroads uh, were synonymous with, they'd put money up into an oil deal or technology deals were not, not the key. Uh, it was just putting money into a deal that someone, some person in an investment banking firm knew or heard about. And so uh, uh, that's how Central National got its deals through through these firms. Uh, so when I started this firm, uh, I really, it was, you really had to chase and find deals. You had to convince people to take your money. I mean, there was not a flow of deals where you sat in your office and just answered the telephone. I mean, it was going out and doing whatever you could to make yourself known that uh, I'm standing here, I've got money, come and see me and I'll put money in your business if I like it. The first investment I made, uh, which is an interesting, uh, its evolution was in the secondary lead smelting business. Was a young guy, 26 years old, who uh, uh, had an option to buy the uh, scrap operation in New Jersey that he was working for. And he had the idea of what he wanted to do to build it and take it beyond the sc scrap. What a scrap operation basically does is primarily collect batteries and then they smelt it, they break it down into its components of lead and antimony and copper, and then resell it back to the battery people or whoever else is buying it. And uh, uh, this fellow, who uh, I am proud to say is, has been an investor in every single fund I've ever done, including my new one, Primetime Partners, uh, uh, he had a vision that there was going to be a lot more environmental controls in that industry and that it wasn't going to have, you know, dirt around every factory and they weren't going to be painted black and have black smoke coming out, but that, you know, the EPA was coming in and that these, for these old plants were going to have to convert. And he ended up today, it, his, the company is the largest secondary smelting company in the world. Uh, ironically, it started with this little scrap operation in New Jersey. That's incredible. Uh, and uh, the person who started is very, very well off. Uh, uh, I like to joke all the time. He gives me, it, it's like a routine because every time he has a party for a birthday or some celebration, he gets up and he said, I, and, uh, Howard Myers wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Alan Patrickoff. And uh, I get up and I say, and Alan Patrickoff wouldn't be here if it weren't for Howard Myers. <laughs> I said, the only thing is he's traveling around in a G4 with two, not one, but two yachts that are 160 and 180 feet long. And I'm still traveling coach. Uh, that's so, by, that's uh, your choice, though, that you're synonymous yeah. with that. But that's your choice on that one. <laughs> but uh, it does get a, a good laugh. And it is true. Uh, although I do. I come out here in business class now out to California. That's good. Go I'm Europe. glad at 87 you're I treating yourself. Not, not to go to Florida or Chicago or Boston. I can do that. Unbelievable. With everybody else. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that. so I was our first investment. The second one was with the animal feed supplement business. And it took three or four investments till we got to the uh, more technological uh, investments in a plated wire company and a voice response company. And uh, although we did look very, very, very seriously at Federal Express uh, as a private company uh, when Fred Smith was going around and raising money and uh, we didn't invest in it as a private company because correctly, I said, this is going to take three or four rounds of capital. We were a very small, we had two and a half million dollar fund. Uh, I said, we're, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get wiped out after the first round. And it turned out that it had four rounds and almost everybody got wiped out uh, until it went public. And yeah. So I so I got back at the investment by saying, "God damn it, we'll buy we'll buy stock in the public market since we really have watched this thing grow." And so we made a lot of money as a an initial uh, IPO in the uh, when the company went public, which was in the early seventies. Uh, but uh, that was a, that was a 
unusual. But but uh, we at that time the the West Coast was really really developing as a hub, and and the word venture capital was becoming a real word and the venture capital association was started in 73 and institutions started investing in the area in 76 because they weren't allowed until then by the pension laws and uh uh you know it was a time when uh you there were small investments no no invest. i mean a, a million dollar investment would have been a big investment at that time in a private investment and raising four or five million dollars would be very big and uh, during the during the seventies, and uh, it was not until the eighties that really institutions started coming in bigger. And and uh, you know, Richard, the initial the IPO markets in those days, people find it hard to believe to understand that companies went public with uh, you know practically you know you could sell twenty percent of your company for a million dollars and go public with a $5 million valuation for the whole company. I mean, Intel went public with an $8 million initial public offering with them. I think, I think the market value was $25 million. And uh, That's even incredible. when Apple uh, went public, uh, when we went into Apple in 1979, it had a $60 million valuation. Oh my uh, God. It, That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, and now and now it probably makes sixty million, makes sixty million, makes sixty million dollars in a minute, a minute, or yes. maybe maybe a second. For all I know, I can't do the math. Oh my God! So you saw Apple at a sixty million dollar valuation. Do you what what did the first two and a half million dollar fund return? Do you remember? I honestly don't remember, but it wasn't a huge return, Richard, because there was no way to have an exponential return in those days. I mean, you couldn't make. 10, 20 times in your money. It was, it was all early. Things were early on and the, uh, the expectations were more limited and the size of companies were limited and our investment size was of course limited. So I think we ended up with a 12% IRR, as I recall, yeah. maybe net, net, which was, that was considered great because, you know, you could make in the market four or 5%. So the differential is what interested people in doing private investments. Yep. And that's the same today. You have a partner, Ronald, who you built, um, you know, Alan Patrickoff Associates, turned into Apex. Um, and I, I always wonder when I, whenever I'm talking to a young entrepreneur, uh, no matter how impressive they are, why they may not have a partner. And the reason I say that is because I really believe strongly in the value of a partnership at a company. You know, Kevin and I complement one another, and I couldn't do anything that I've done without him. Um, and I think that... You see this with great partnerships. When they work, they're incredible. You know, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. Um, you and Ronald were working together for, I would imagine, 30, 40 years. What was it about yeah. that partnership that worked? And what, when did you guys meet and connect on everything? Uh, let, me, let me say this, Rich. I agree with you 100%. And you'll, if you talk to your your best friend, Jamie, he will tell you that I said to him from the very beginning to find a partner because it makes it so much easier uh, in life to have someone to rub, you know, run something up against. And uh, uh, even if, forget about taking a holiday, but just someone who you can come in every day and, and exchange views and, and challenge and you. I tell you their views. The, uh, I had a early partner uh, didn't, who joined me very, very shortly after I started a woman by the name of Patricia Clarity, who I'm happy to say has invested in almost every fund I've ever done. Uh, and who I'm still friendly with, uh, very, very friendly with, uh, not well, unfortunately. And she became, went on to become the, uh, first woman head of the National Venture Capital Association, which was a big deal. If you know about women in venture capital, there aren't a lot of them. And she then became head of the Russian American Enterprise Fund. Uh, uh, 
uh, Ronald and I got together in 76 when he was running an operation in Europe uh, uh, called MMG, which was in the investment banking, merchant banking, uh, but he had aspirations of getting into venture. And we decided to form a company together with, he had a partner in France by the name Maurice Chenyo. So MMG was in France and in England. And they wanted, uh, they had a partner in, in Chicago who the three of them had met at the Harvard Business School. I did not go to the Harvard Business School. As you know, I went to Columbia uh, Business School after Ohio State. And I am proud to say I'm still on the Board of Overseers at, at, at Columbia. Uh, but, the, but the partner in Chicago decided to go back to teaching. And so they needed a, a U.S. Uh, partner to be, you know, this England, France, and the U.S. made a great triumvirate. And so we got together in the late 70s and started uh, were initially in, in corporate finance and doing deals. Uh, hey, I set up a separate subsidiary to do M&A transactions uh, and to pay, pay the bills because it was some tough times in there. And, uh, and then we launched the first uh, fund in 81 in London and 82 in France. And, uh, uh, you know, sometime in 1990 changed the name because we now were in six or seven countries or more. And so we added as Alan, everything was called Alan Patrickoff Associates. And we decided we'd add an X and become Alan Patrickoff Associates International and Apex's obviously stuck with it ever since. And so that was a great partnership. And, and then when I started Graycroft, I started initially with two partners, Ian Sigalo and, and Dana Settle, both of whom are still my partners because I'm still chairman emeritus of Graycroft. And they've been phenomenal partners. Uh, and uh, my new firm, uh, Primetime Partners, I have a woman partner again, uh, so I've had three women partners as part of my business, uh, a woman named Abby Levy. And uh, I believe very strongly in partnership, just like you do. I think it, it helps to build something, helps to run ideas off of. I don't think any of us have a, a, a patent on, you know, what, how to do things and how to make decisions. And I, I, I they've all worked. I, 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 in my book, there is a picture, unfortunately, Dana was not in the East Coast, but there's a picture of Ronald, myself, and Ian, and Abby, uh, you know, because uh, I'm very, very, very proud of the fact that uh, all these people have stayed friend with friends. I mean, not, they are not all, but I'm friendly with each of them. Yep. And, uh, and it's, I think it's willingness to uh, accede to someone else's ideas, not thinking you know it all. Uh, being open about it. Uh, in my case, uh, I honestly think I was very generous in sharing the wealth, uh, sharing the ownership, sharing the carries with everybody uh, so that everybody uh, was treated fairly and had no reason to leave and do something else. And that's, that's kind of unusual in my field where you find in most firms, someone leaves because they feel they haven't you know, been treated fairly and haven't gotten enough of the equity. In my case, I probably treated myself too poorly. <laughs> uh, uh, but you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I have no regret, no regrets. It's, it's nice to have those relationships. And look, I've built three firms. Apex now is, I think, has sixty billion dollars under management. Remember, we started with two and a half million. Uh, Graycraft started with a $75 million fund. It's now over $2 billion. Uh, and primetime, we, again, started small because it was a new idea. Uh, we haven't talked about it, but primetime invests in anything, products, services, experiences, technologies, media that serve the, what I call the ageless generation. You're not quite there, Richard, yet, but your parents are. Yes. And, yes. uh, and uh, everybody's parents are, and whether it's caregiving or whether it's financial advisory or whether it's uh, telemedicine for senior facilities or whether it's software that's dealing with 
nursing homes and and uh, other caregiving facilities or new technologies for uh, monitoring people in the home. It's a huge market. It's been underserved. And I think we've gotten a lot of press because we are, you know, thought of as being prescient to see this market opportunity. Yep. And do you think, you know, we spent time, you and I together during the pandemic, actually, we hiking, first, we first talked about it. Yes. Hiking. When you asked me if I'd like to take a walk with you and then I drove to East Hampton and you told me to follow you another 40 minutes deep into Montauk. <laughs> so now about an hour and 10 out from my house for what turned out to be, as I expected, an incredible and informative walk. And when I'm with you, I, I not only do I still refer to you, like we said earlier, as Mr. Patrickoff, but this curiosity that I do know I've had since as long as I can remember being alive, just wanting to know and ask so many questions. And you're one of the most welcoming recipients of my questions historically. And I always learned something. And I remember thinking when I was walking with you um, about prime time, just how unbelievably obvious this was and how unbelievably perfect only you could be. And obviously, Abby, your partner is incredible. And you always do have the most incredible partners, I think. And the, the best part about them is that there's no real overlap. I see such this compliment, this like perfect combining of two people. You and Abby have such different skill sets that complement one another, but you just nailed it. I left that walk and I'm like, of course, of course somebody should be focusing the same way we do every other generation of life, but we have just kind of left that alone. And, you know, I think the amazing things about entrepreneurs or people that create things is when you hear it, at first you may think to yourself either they're nuts and they end up telling you an incredible idea or it's the opposite and it's just Boom, you know it. And I felt that way. And I think the craziest thing that I always kind of um, pick up on and watch with you is your ability to balance it all. And not being able to balance it all at 87, because you're just a unicorn. I don't even think of you as 87 years old. You're a complete anomaly. But what I do think that's incredible is your ability to always balance your family and your priorities and sometimes probably too much, like when you take a coach seat as opposed to splurging on a business seat, but you've always known what's important. And that to me has been your calling card is that you really are present and there for your family and also build business. Do you think at any point you compromised? Like, do you ever look at your um, business life or your personal life and think, you know what, I compromised a little bit on business or I think I might have compromised a little bit on family or do you feel like you actually fulfilled the perfect balance? I, you know, the answer is, I don't think any of us can feel we've done, a, done it perfectly. I think if anything, I've compromised on family life. I have a, a, a friend of, uh, of, uh, of Jonathan, uh, Keith Meister's father, used to uh, Bob Meister used to sit with me in the stands when I was watching them play some, whatever sport it was, baseball probably. And I'd be sitting reading the Wall Street Journal and he likes to always make fun of me and tell tell stories about how I'm, I'm there watching the kids and also at the same time reading the journal. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm very, very, very focused on my family. Uh, and my grandchildren would tell you that uh, I am a unique grandfather. I make it to their chorals singing, to their games, to their, uh, you know, not, I probably at times a little bit too uh, obsessive. Uh, <laughs> I gave them all great Valentine's Day present. You'll love what I did, Richard. I, I, I gave seven grandchildren seven pairs of sneakers. Uh, and I, I hit the absolute... Best, I mean, I, all I know I mean, is they've all been. I'm sending me notes that how did I think of this kind of a gift for Valentine's Day? Uh, uh, that's amazing. I got them this. I didn't know this Converse sneaker, and it happens by accident to have red hearts on the side of the of the sneaker, which was not why I bought. It. I didn't know when I did it, uh, but I gather that's a hot brand for kids these days. But I, you know, I. I'm taking two of my granddaughters to the theater next week. I'm taking one of my grandson out for dinner. Uh, I, I know I try to spend time with all my kids. I'm very, very interested. But you you end up giving up 
sacrificing something. And uh, uh, I've, I've also, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is that my life is just not business. I mean, as you know, I've spent time in politics. I've spent time in the art field and the music field. I spent three or four years in between Apex and Graycroft uh, working pro bono uh, for the World Bank in international development and and traveled all over, all over to some of the worst places you can imagine in Africa and Southeast Asia, trying to help the uh, World Bank build up an entrepreneurial environment through angel networks or whatever. So, uh, I, you know, I, I believe in living a multifaceted life. Uh, uh, just, you know, um, uh, just being singularly focused on making money or, you know, being in venture capital or anything else really does not produce a, a really cultured, well read diversified life and yeah. i i've always uh, that's been very important to me yep i'd also be remiss if i didn't mention that you know the reason why you probably always were able to seem so present and why everything was handled is because you married the most exceptional woman that's ever been and that is you know your late wife susan who was as inspiring for me growing up as you were um, and I and I know how important that is because obviously I I've been married for 19 years now or 19 years in November and you know more than anything you know you are the luckiest man in the world or woman when you find a partner that you know understands how crazy it is to be an entrepreneur and how crazy it is to have this zest for life because you know I I just I, I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac at times and my doctor asked me what I was so worried about like why you just like why well, don't understand what you're so worried about and I was like practically I'm fine. Like I'm not actually worried about anything. I really love life and I just want to be here forever. And I know that's not possible, but when I see someone your age being able to accomplish what you do, find time for the things you find time for as well, like you said, round your mind out culturally help in the arts and in politics, there's really nothing you haven't touched. Um, but I would imagine you love life as well because Absolutely. You know, but, and you mentioned Richard, a very important thing. And I thank you for reminding me. I mean, the one who probably sacrificed was Susan because she had to put up with a lot of my yeah. uh, uh, craziness. And as you probably know, again, the reason I call it no red lights is I am well known for doing three events every evening <laughs> and no one can understand how you can even uh, do uh, one much less two or three and and she put up with that a lot of that although i must say in in the last 10 or 15 years she would tell me to go on myself after a certain point she just didn't want to keep doing it but i still to this day run a very active life but susan was very much a part of it and in the book i have written uh about this some some uh, amount of uh uh, content about the experience I had with her because she had Alzheimer's for 12 years. And that's an experience nobody wants to go through. But unfortunately, more and more people are living. We all have some friend or relative or spouse that sadly has this come about. And uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a pernicious disease, as yeah. well. I can say. And unfortunately, I don't see any uh, solution very soon. And uh, uh, she passed away over a year ago, but, uh, uh, it was a long journey. Yeah. She was absolutely incredible angel. So, um, I was very lucky to know her and be as close to her as I was. Um, but we were married 51 years. So that's, that said something. That's a good, that's a good run right there. She put up with me that long. <laughs> I know she ran red lights with you for 51 years. Yeah. Man. Um, two final questions before I let you go. The first one is, more venture business related as you've seen i would imagine three different like major disruptions uh in the world right the introduction of technology in some regards and so many of the things that we know today like xerox fedex etc um the internet and now um nfts and web3 how do you process all of this and from like a 360 degree whatever that saying is a bird's eye view um, whatever it is. I actually, funny, quick sidebar. I once took a meeting with you in my twenties and I messed up a phrase. You may not remember this. And there was like a room of people 
and you corrected the phrase and I just killed myself over it for the rest of the day. It was like a really simple like figure of speech and I said it wrong, which I do a lot and you corrected it and I knew I wasn't going to get it by you. But give me a little perspective on seeing these changes and like what to expect and what not to overreact to. Uh, well, it's interesting you, you phrase it that way. I would say that um, I think at the moment, I mean, we are seeing a modest correction because of this, uh, of the, uh, I, I don't know what, maybe the inflation, interest rates going up, uh, uh, the Ukraine situation. But I, I think uh, there has been a lot of excess uh, in the marketplaces, uh, particularly because of later stage funds being created of such enormous size and because of the hedge funds moving into this area to uh, participate in perhaps IPOs, pre-IPO. And so the valuations, particularly in later stage companies, have, have, in my opinion, in some cases gotten extraordinary. And I think that's permeated into the, to the stock market, to the IPO market. And so uh, and I, I worry that people, even like yourself, Richard, probably know not well, it depends. No, you, you're actually a little older than that. But there are a lot of people uh, working, for example, at Graycroft and a lot of people I see in the marketplace who weren't there in the market for the, uh, the, the bubble from 99 to 2001, 2002, which was really rough. Uh, you know, and I've been through the, the rough part of 74. I've been through the catastrophe of 87. I've been through uh, so many of these uh, hiccups. And, uh, I, you know, we are living right now where, if you think about it, you know, uh, we've got, do have the inflation problem. We do have interest rates. We do have the surprise of whatever could happen in the Ukraine. we got to worry about Taiwan. We do have to worry about, and I certainly am very happy with uh, President Biden, but, you know, he he is uh, vulnerable. I lived through Eisenhower uh, in a heart attack and watching after a heart attack, the market go down 500, I don't know how many points, because in those days, the market was much, much, much lower, but it was huge uh, air pocket. Uh, so I think we are very vulnerable to, to a surprise. And I think that there's a, there is excess in the market and it's a time for really careful discipline, uh, which I hope we at prime time are exercising. And to the extent I still have a, a emphasis, uh, not emphasis, have any uh, impact at uh, Graycroft as chairman emeritus, uh, and I do participate in meetings, trying to caution people to say, you know, you haven't seen a, a real bad market. Yes, you saw 2008, but 2008 really was an unusual blip in the market. And, and uh, I don't count it. it. The nevertheless was painful, but nothing like 99 or 2001 and uh, like it was in the, in the late 80s. So I think we are vulnerable. And I don't know where or how it's going to come, but the markets, nothing goes straight up. And we've had a straight up market for you know, almost 20 years, uh, except for 2008. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's bound to be some correction. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of dog walking companies. We've got a lot of food delivery companies. We've got a, a lot of companies that have, you know, uh, come into the market to serve millennials, um, which is why I, I started something that I think is a, uh, area that's i mean i'm not saying we wouldn't be we won't be vulnerable also but i don't think there isn't much excess in the areas i'm in uh, yeah. yet yes but even here uh, you know things get priced up so fast all you know people see it and they all jump on the same thing yep. so and there's a lot of com companies that are being formed that are duplicative rather than being original and uh uh that you know you don't see that much new technology as much as you see applications of existing technology yep. which is not quite the same so i'd say uh on the other hand ai is opening up all kinds of opportunities of doing things faster the space uh space is a whole new exciting area and there's always something 
new on the horizon. And, uh, you know, who knows, we may see fusion one of these days, uh, in which case it will change the whole world. Uh, electric vehicles certainly doing that now. So there's always some place yep. to uh, get in. And I, I would say focus on companies that have, you know, an original idea, understand the economics, and where more important than anything else, you back good people. That's the key in the end. And the last question um, is is more like it's a privilege because there's very few chances one has to speak to somebody at 87 who as sharp as you and has as much experience and insight as you. But I think in general, when you look at the world today, obviously, you know, we are very blessed, you and I, but when you look at the world today with, you mentioned Ukraine, the pandemic, uh, the environment, um, obviously politics and what's been in front of us for the last few years and historically just our country's, you know, awful, system of racism and everything that we've had to deal with and that's been so obvious to so many people now more than ever it, there's times where people I, I speak to are just down about life you know like you lived a certain way you felt like you knew that things were a certain way and there could never be a pandemic here this could never happen but you've lived through so many of these things, wars and assassinations and all of the things we've talked about throughout. At 87, would you say, um, you know, if you were younger right now or even from where you're sitting, that you're bullish and optimistic overall on the world, on society, on invention, on innovation? Or do you feel like some of this was like an opening to some unfortunate future that we, you know, maybe took for granted in so many ways? Well, first of all, Richard, just to remind you, and I know you know this, but I'll say it for you. You remember, I'm going to live to 114. I already know that. I already yeah. know. I, I said that. You 27 it, so. more. I already know. But your but your but your listeners don't know that, and I, and I live my life with that horizon ahead of me. So I have a very positive attitude that you know we're going to be around here for a long time. I am concerned with the income disparity in this country. And I've been concerned with that for a long time. Uh, I'm one of the, not the only, but one of the few people, for example, that thinks carried interest is ordinary income and not capital gains, which doesn't make me very popular with a lot of venture capitalists, but the ones who are honest know the fact that it is ordinary income. Uh, and I do think I, I'm not objecting to paying a higher tax rate uh, if it would accomplish something to help those who are uh, less fortunate. I think the president's bills, which will have, by the way, caregiving for younger kids and caregiving for older parents, people forget there are now, I think that I happen to know the number, I think it's 56 million people are taking care of someone today for free, you know, a parent, sibling, whatever, uh, they're the unpaid caregivers who are, you know, burdened in their, it affects their mental health and everything else. So uh, uh, we have to be concerned with all those in the president's bills, I think, are trying to address some of those inequities. But I, I innovation, I, I don't know the exact you know, you know, definition of it, but it means something new. And I think that the American spirit is such that uh, we're going to have new things. Uh, they, they just, you can't stop it. Uh, you know, that's innovation. That's why venture capital will be around for a long time. I, I always say, and maybe it's not a bad place to close this conversation, although I'm not trying to close, I can go on forever. Uh, I always say that I go to work every day, hoping that the elevator door will open and the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, or you get the idea, will walk out of the door with the next great uh, something. And uh, that's how I, you know, why I stay in this business and why I think it's such an exciting field to be in, uh, as opposed to private equity or buying stocks in the market. I mean, we, we should see, whether it's my firm or some other, you know, that next new exciting creation, innovation idea, and the next great entrepreneurs and entrepreneur. And I think that uh, it's going to be here. It's not going away. Yep. Well, uh, Mr. Patrickoff, Alan, thank you so much. Uh, I, as I would 
would only assume you have inspired me, you've inspired our listeners, I know. I want everybody, I'm gonna read your book this weekend, I want everybody to read No Red Lights, 50 Years in VC and Never Driving Alone. Uh, I wanna thank you so much for your time, for your friendship, for your mentorship. Um, and I'm excited for the next 27 years of your life. I can only imagine what you're going to accomplish. Right. They can pre-order the book, Richard. I, it's on Amazon or Walmart, Target. Uh, it just went up. It just went up last week. So uh, hopefully uh, it will have some success. We'll see. Well, we will. I will make sure we get the word out. This should be a must read for anybody. Um, you have... You have your own wisdom that no one else can share. And uh, I think the world is ready to read it and hear it. So thank you again. Uh, I appreciate it. Send my love to your family and I will see you soon. See you in New York. I hope. Yes. Goodbye. I reminisce, I reminisce.